You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. And today we have Lauren with us. Lauren, I am not even going to try and and say your last name, but Lauren is from the Behavior Hub. How about you go ahead and give us your last name so I don't mess it up? Sure, of course. Got some strong German roots in there. Spiegelmeier. That was my guess. That was my guess. But I'm good at being wrong, so I'll admit that. Write it on the calendar, baby. I admitted that I'm good at being wrong. It's going on more than a calendar. We're kind of like frame that ish. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren is a founder over at Behavior Hub, and if you want to find her, what it's the uh, behavior is it the Behavior Hub or BehaviorHub.com? It is the Behavior Hub. There we go. We'll make sure we get that right. And she has her own podcast called Return to Us. So you guys go check her out over there. But I was looking at Lauren online and and uh, reading some of her information, and I went, "This woman likes to talk about brain science." And Amanda <laughs> kind of rolls her eyes at me, like, "Whatever." And I'm like, "No, that's the cool stuff, man. That's what the cool kids like." So talk to us a little bit about you know how this all this brain science, all these all this body science fits in with the foster care journey that so many of us are on. Yeah. Great question. And I'm going to go back like way back. So, um, a child with a really challenging, um, upbringing, very stressful, very traumatic. And then that led to education, helping field, of course, um, helper that didn't have help as a child now helping others. And fast forward and I had these challenging kids in classrooms and, you know, schools, I would say schools as a whole, but people can write them off. You know, they're a lot to manage, a lot to deal with stressful. So I'm curious where are these behaviors coming from? Why are these kids acting this way? So I started doing digging, digging into human trauma and stress, human biology, the brain, I'm learning all these things and I end up leaving education. And I start working in this consulting role where I focus more on early intervention. And I find myself connecting with and in front of a lot of foster care families and mostly ones that are pursuing early intervention. But in these conversations with them, I learned very quickly that what I was sharing with them was like true awakening. Like, Oh, this, this information all makes sense. Why these kids do this or why they behave this way or why some of these behaviors aren't necessarily a conscious choice. So I started reaching out and talking to and working with more and more foster care families. It's also a place that's near and dear to my heart. I used to do respite foster care. So um, getting back into this work with them, sharing this work with them and, and seeing how impactful it is has been, has been really awesome. That's really awesome. How long did you do respite care for? Gosh, probably three years. I would take a lot of kids like during holidays to give, you know, nuclear families a, a little bit of a break. And, um, 
I had a really awesome loving family. So we always took those kids in during the holidays and showered them in love. And we didn't, we didn't have a lot of young kids at that time. So we got a lot of attention. So we can send all of our teenagers to your house. <laughs> I don't know about the teens. More in favor of the you know, babies and toddlers. What I heard was somebody who's very adventurous. That's what I heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, was there a particular reason why you wanted to, to help out by doing respite care? Yeah, I just loved babies and I was nowhere near ready to have, have my own. And, um, there's just something about like through some of that learning, realizing how, you know, babies that might be born into unfortunate circumstances really can be healed. Their brains are so malleable and, you know, what we relationship wise, attachment wise, love wise, give them, you know, in, in the foster care setting is so powerful. And I'm like, ah, oh, I, I know this, I had this to give and I have nowhere to send it you know, other than my, my family and there are kids who need this. So it seemed like the best Avenue to, to be able to offer that. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask a question right off the bat because we've got baby magpie here and for everybody, mm -hmm. like all the, all the privacy stuff is good. She's, um, she's baby magpie because I've never met a baby who sucks a passy as aggressively as, as she does <laughs> other than baby Maggie from the Simpsons. So that's how she got magpie. But uh, <laughs> yeah, baby, baby um, over here was born with some addiction issues. Mm -hmm. um, she had some, you know, fentanyl and marijuana and methamphetamines, I believe it was in her, okay. in her system when she was born. And so I'm just going to straight up start with one of those hard questions. What in the world can people like us do to help a newborn like that as they, I mean, other than just the simple connection, consistency, maybe scheduling stuff, but what can we do to help a baby who's gone through that kind of trauma? Is there anything that we can do? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that you're talking about like chemical changes in the brain upon birth, like already not in favor of, of their development. So you can, you could guess that some parts of the brain are probably underdeveloped. Like a lot of the emotional parts of the brain that are starting to develop in, in utero, emotional control, impulsivity, you know, mood management, things like that. Probably, probably delayed. These kids are probably harder to soothe once they're born, um, a little bit more needy. Um, so, you know, one of the best things that we can do is, is what we do in foster care, you give them lots of love and attention and we give them, you know, exposure, to all those happy emotions. But I would say that the biggest thing and, and what they sometimes don't get when they don't, you know, land with families like this is when kids can't regulate early on and they are tougher to soothe, the, one of the easiest things that we can do if we can manage our emotions well is just stay really neutral, stay really calm and let them catch our calm because our emotions are, are contagious and babies are a really good energetic read of that. So when we families are, are taking in these kids and we, you know, we're anxious, we're stressed and tense, we can feel they, the babies can feel all of that. So if we can do really, you know, good job at staying calm, they will catch our calm and they will remain peaceful. And uh, that will start to change their own chemical makeup of the brain. It will start to, you know, uh, help them to self-soothe. Well, that's good because that's kind of my, my thing. You know, I'm, I love to take, that's why we've had a number of addicted infants come to our house. I, I tell the workers, Hey, you got an addicted baby. I'm the one to call. That's, that's my, <laughs> my wheelhouse. Cause I think also as a guy, 
Maybe it's a guy thing, maybe not, but I'm way more able to dissociate from that screaming and yelling and just turn mm-hmm. off that frequency band that, that my mm-hmm. wife has told me that I do sometimes. Just don't mm-hmm. – selective hearing I think is what, mm-hmm. what it's always been called. And I can turn that off and just – I have sat for, I don't know, probably a thousand hours with babies, whether it's kids in foster care or just kids in the family, to just sit and quietly sing to babies. I mean, they're the only ones who are willing to listen to me, so (laughs) (laughs) I have no Grammys coming my way. I know this, but they get to, yeah, they get to hear old church songs, you know, calm, peaceful, (laughs) quiet songs, because that's, that's what I grew up with. And, you know, that's, that's what's deep in my soul. And so I have, I have a bunch of those old calm songs. So that's, that's really interesting to know that that, that's actually a good thing. I'm not just uh, crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think even to go like further into that. So staying calm is great. Also exposing them to a lot of rhythmic regulating like, r- rhythm is regulating. So if you can expose to rhythmic activities, it's, it's so singing. Awesome. That's why it usually works well for kids when they're rocked. Um, swings are great. Um, like trample and not for, for toddlers, but young kids, trampolines are great Th- things where they are in rhythmic and it could be music. It could be dancing. It could be whatever it is, but rhythm is really regulating. <laughs> Amanda just whispers in my ear. She said trampolines because <laughs> I've been trying to talk him into a trampoline for years for our kids. But some of our kids are extremely rough and tumble and have really broken well. bones on trampolines. But I just I was giving him trouble about it. Yeah, well, I keep saying insurance. It costs more. I don't want to pay more for it. Should be a mini trampoline. <laughs> Ah, not as fun. I want to be able to bounce way up in the sky and flip. And- yeah, yeah, y'all can have that fun, not me. Uh, but no, that that's really interesting to know that that some of that stuff, you know, because that's, I mean, let's be honest, that's what what old grandmas have been doing mm-hmm. for how many mm-hmm. thousands of generations? Yeah. Yep. There's, you know, that you sit them in the rocking chair and, and nowadays, you know, I'm in the modern day rocking chair. I've got the office chair that rocks, right? <laughs> but they get to rock and swivel and, and sing and, and do all yeah. that. It just seems to be so helpful. So that's really yeah. interesting to know that that's actually like there's a real science behind why that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, it's, it's really, it's really interesting that you have that background in being a respite care provider yourself. And, and now, did you do that before you pushed into this arena of education or, or was that all kind of together? I did. And that was when I was just getting into it. I was just doing a lot of reading and learning. That was before finding mentors. That was before really digging into uh, the psych- field of psychology. And yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, the psychology thing, that's, that's where I should have gone. I found out much later <laughs> in life because I... I have my psychology degree over here on the wall. Um, I, I wrote it myself with crayon, <laughs> so you know what it's worth. But that that the whole thing around the psychology of kids is so interesting to me that so many pieces of this can be boiled down, understood, and it's not just the craziness that's it looks mm-hmm. like sometimes. Yeah, you know, and you know, can you speak maybe a little bit to that? Why it's important for for us to realize how to re- keep ourselves regulated so that we can speak into their total dysregulated space when it happens. Because kids in foster care, they come into care with a good amount of, mm-hmm. of dysregulated emotions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it's hard for us. It's hard now, I think, more than it has been because there are so many other, I mean, right now in the last two years, it's definitely been harder because the pandemic. So there's just more stress all around and that makes it harder to regulate. I mean, even myself who has had a pretty solid, like, 
regulatory diet. Like I do, you know, these different things and they all help me to regulate. And I'm finding that some of those things alone anymore don't always help me regulate as well as I used to. So now I'm having to like stack one on top of the other. So I would say, you know, take a moment to pause and think, you know, how are my regulation skills and am I staying really regulated when I'm around my kids? And if I'm not, you know, what am I doing or not doing? And, and I, I would make lists like here are all the things I do. Cause some people aren't even aware of what the things are that they do to regulate, or they don't realize they're dysregulated. Um, so the first step is awareness, <laughs> recognize that you are getting dysregulated. And the second step is intention, figure out what, what you need to do to, to change or what you need to do to get closer to regulation. Yeah. Cause I'll, I'll let everybody into a little picture of what our, our regular life looks like. The other day I was talking to Amanda on the phone and one of the kids was really pushing her buttons and, and I'm talking to her. I'm like, you need to calm yourself down. They need to have less emotion in your voice. You need to, and, and I get through this whole thing. And I'm giving great advice. I mean, trust me, it was amazingly great advice. And like 10 minutes later, I had to call her back. And I'm like, all right. So I'm telling you that you need to calm down all the while. I don't even realize that I'm the one over here falling into my own dysregulation because I can hear the kids being little buttheads in the background. Mm -hmm. And I think I owe... I think I deserve to, or you deserve an apology because, because I walked into this like in my own dysregulation, telling you need to do what I need to do in that moment. So mm -hmm. as adults, it's really hard to to recognize that a lot of times because we didn't get taught this stuff as kids, right? No, no. nobody ever taught this to us. And mm -hmm. I found for me personally, when I feel like I'm the most right, it's usually when I'm the most wrong and really mm -hmm. need to pay attention to what's going on. What are some yeah. some ideas for people to help realize when they're in that in that place where they've been triggered up into their own amygdala, their brain's firing off, and yeah. they are not the person who should be calming a kid down? Yeah. Um, honestly, I, I'm going to go into this is a great point to go into this hand signal about the emotional brain and the thinking brain. And it's something I really, I start to teach kids as young as two, if they're cognitively able, it's you know better, faster with three and then beyond. And for older kids, I will change the terms. I will use less kid-like kid, kid -like terms. But this, this concept I'm going to explain is something I even use as an adult. Really, really simple way to explain the brain under stress and how to recognize dysregulation and how to start to get more regulated. So there's this hand signal created out of Dan Siegel's work, well-known in the field of childhood psychology. So what you do with this is you like almost hand up, like you're going to do like a high five and you, you tuck your thumb across your palm and then you wrap your fingers around your thumb. It's almost like a, was it sign language, like a or E close to between the two of those. Um, but you have this hand signal. So how it works is your fingers on the top they go up and down together like a bird's wings and they represent what we call the wise owl and the wise owl is your thinking brain it's where problem solving lies it's where communication lies it's where reason and rationality lie and that's in scientifically what we call the prefrontal cortex so you are regulated when you are in that brain under those four fingers you have your thumb and your thumb is what we call the barking dog. So that is your emotional control center. And scientifically, we call it the limbic area, which inside of the limbic area is, is the amygdala. So it's the barking dog because it's like a, a an alert or a threat detection system, like a, a, a guard dog would, would warn you. So when we get stressed or when we get triggered, the dog, the thumb barks very loudly. So you can, you can like move your thumb in and out like a, a barking dog. 
what's happening in this whole process is when you or a child is emotionally triggered and their dog is barking, your thumb is wildly moving, the loud barking of the dog scares away the wise owl. So with this hand signal, you show the rapid moving of your thumb and then you show the fingers flying, flying away from the dog. And what that whole process means is that when we are emotionally triggered and our emotional brain is activated, the barking dog is activated. It scares away the wise owl, meaning it scares away logic, reason, and sometimes communication. So when we're communicating with kids and we're like, stop that, calm down, don't do that. They can't hear you. They can't, they're not in their logic brain. They can't respond to a demand or request until we help them to calm their barking dog. When the dog stops barking, when your thumb stops moving, that wise owl that flew away can fly back. And then we can respond and act with logic and reason. It's the same for adults. So in any state, whether you're in a car stuck in traffic or you're communicating with your significant other, or you're working with kids or at work, really think about, okay, right now, is my dog barking? Is it barking loudly? Has it scared away my wise owl? Is it just kind of barking in the the wise owl is kind of getting ready to fly away? Or is my dog calm? And when you can think about, okay, right now I can tell like my chest is tight or you know, I'm feeling anxious or I'm stressed out, you know, my dog is probably barking. And then when you know your dog is barking, then you can walk yourself through, okay, it's awareness. I've recognized it. Dog is starting to bark. What can I do to calm the barking dog so that I can access logic and reason again? And for, for kids and adults, those things will look very different, but typically things that calm the, the barking dog, movement, human touch, breathing. So practice some deep breaths, go outside, get some fresh air, take a lap around your space. If you can hug a human, hug a human, um, any of those things will, will usually calm the barking dog. I love that. I love that. No, two important things, hugging a human. I guess you should make sure that you're allowed to hug that particular human first. <laughs> it's true. It is true. I mean, that goes so well if you try to hug a human, does not want to be hugged. And I've seen lots of people whose wise owl seems like it's it's trying to fly at me as I'm in traffic, but it's always just one small piece. It's that that one center finger that, that talks to me in traffic. I see that a lot. I drive for a living. And so, right. I, so and that, that's why I talk about like this amygdala stuff is so amazing because mm-hmm. I see people lose their ever loving mm-hmm. minds. Yep. Now, you know, for, I don't know if I've ever mentioned on the podcast, but what I do for money on a regular basis is I drive a tractor trailer that has a tanker full of gasoline behind me. So I have 80,000 pounds of liquid dynamite on the interstate. Mm-hmm. And what I see humans do all the time when they lose their mind about something stupid, that they, they, they think you did something wrong for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, they want to pull up, swing around in front of a tractor trailer, and slam on the brakes to, to, to prove that they're mad about something. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, y'all don't realize yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't even realize, like, you almost solved all of our problems right here because they almost all went away. They're all going to be somebody else's problems here in, yeah. about, in about three or four seconds when this goes boom. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I see, uh, so much of the human population does not have that ability right now mm-hmm. to regulate no. that. No, no, I don't think we ever, I don't think we ever learned it. We don't teach it in school systems. You know, it's a fight for me and the behavior hub to push into schools. Like we don't need this. We need academics. Kids are behind that. Kids are behind in academics because they can't regulate because they can't access logic and reason every single day. So you all are teaching to zombies that are stuck in their emotional brains. So until you learn that this has to come first, your scores will never improve. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I think uh, we could preach on this for hours and hours. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you though, because you know, some of the stuff that goes on in our school systems right now, you know, we, Mm -hmm. we hadn't had an issue just recently with, um, uh, an older kid trying to 
um, so I'm going to try and protect enough privacy here, but try an older kid who was trying to uh, inappropriately touch one of our kids. And I'm just going to say, you know, this, this kid has, he's been through a boatload of trauma in his life already. Mm-hmm. And at eight years old, he, this older kid on the school bus, um, he got angry and, you know, he was trying, he was, there was another kid that one of his friends who was beside him, who was a little bit smaller. And he said, I'm not going to let him do that. And I'm sure not going to let him let him get my friend. And so he shoved him. He got angry and shoved the kid out into the floor and made a big deal out of it and and came home and, and told my wife about it. And I mean, all the things that kids typically don't do. Yeah. You know, they don't stand up for themselves. They mm-hmm. don't protect the other people mm-hmm. around them. They, they don't go tell an adult. And, you know, so, so you have these kids who typically don't have that ability in them who might deal yeah. with something like that. And you wonder why you have a hard time teaching them in class today. Well, right. uh, that something happened, and and nobody wants to wants to, to face that and do something about it. I, I'm yeah. not going to say I wasn't maybe on the phone with a principal more than once. And there's a few principals in this world who I, I'm a, I'm an involved parent, and some principals really like that and appreciate it. Some of them <laughs> don't because I'm very involved, and I will have an adult conversation with another adult principal and say, "Look, mm-hmm. we're going to deal with this," but it, it appears as if. Most kids who deal with this stuff never have it resolved, never have it even approached. Nobody knows about it. And you have mm-hmm. a school full of kids with their own mm-hmm. level of trauma that mm-hmm. are all trying to learn a long division. Right. And I don't know if you remember learning long division, but I don't think that was something most kids look back on fondly. <laughs> no, no, I loved math. So it was really regulating for me, but <laughs> for most kids, not, not the case. Well, yeah. we would probably get along really well. I'm the guy who went to calculus <laughs> in high school because it was fun. I took calc Same. two in college for fun. Um, I'm weird. <laughs> I know. I get it. Nobody else thinks that way. But I like it because math – and it's interesting you mentioned it that way, but math was regulating because it was one of the things I could see in life that never changed. Yeah. The yep. only exceptions Numbers. is dividing yep. by zero. That's mm-hmm. it. <laughs> yeah, and the square root of negative one, and we figured out how to handle that. So I'll, I'll step off my math thing because I know everybody else is like, you're weird. Shut up. <laughs> but but that was the thing for me is, is having something I could hold on to that yeah. was really, really a center of gravity in my life. Yeah. And, and I know that, um, that most people don't have that. I, how do you find that for a kid who maybe doesn't like – the weird kids who don't like math? Yeah. Oh, it's tough. Um as much as we can expose them to different hobbies and interests. Um, and I, some, some kids will be resistant to trying new things, but even a small doses, like not, not like committing to like, yep, we're going to play soccer for the next year. I'm like, well, let's just try like a weekend long soccer camp or something, you know, something short term, but little doses of exposure. And even if you, you know, you can't really find, like I have already contacted programs, um, gymnastics, pottery, who knows what, where it's like, Oh, this is a six week long program. And I, I email them, I reach out. I'm like, Hey, here's a situation with my kiddo. I, I'm not sure we're ready for six weeks. Can we come in for an hour? Can we come in and observe? Can we come in and try it? See, see how they react and respond. And then if it goes well, then move forward from there. But as many little pieces of exposure and, and you can expose them even, you know, online, there's a lot of opportunities now you can order kits in. So the more that they can find out what they like and don't like is going to help them to figure out who they are and who they're not. You know, I think I found one of the one of the classes that a lot of my kids have either loved or hated, and the ones who loved it, I think, might fall into that would be the art class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because so many kids, you know, have that that right brain left brain thing going on at mm-hmm. some point in their development, and they really like the art stuff. 
Yeah. And I, I find that that for my kids that, that, that has been really helpful over time, depending on which kid it was, you know, I have plenty of boys who decided that art was for girls, but you know, <laughs> it's funny because I felt the same way growing up. It was never my thing. And now one of the hobbies I have is I do some blacksmithing, you know, and, yeah. and I'm, I, I eventually figured out how to make steel roses and there was something in the the fact that I was taking a piece of scrap and turning it into a piece of beauty. And that would that's been always been something that's really regulating for me. And, and I guess that's the other end of this as an adult, how do we convince ourselves that our hobbies, the things that feed us, that fill that up are the things that we need to be doing on a regular basis because I have not had my forge fired up in probably coming close to a year just because life has yeah. been so busy. And I've decided I don't need to do that stuff when obviously it would be helpful. So how can we convince, you know, convince people to go out and fill their own cups? That's tough. Um, I think again, these last two years more so than ever, and I find myself doing it as well, even like preaching it, knowing how important this is, is is stepping away from a lot of those play-based activities because I'm like, wow, that, that can wait. There's not time for that. This is more pressing. This is, you know, this has to be done. And I think some of that comes with in the last two years, like myself and seeing others, somewhat of a lack of boundaries. Like, I'm not sure if the stress has caused these lack of boundaries, but you know, I find myself, teachers, other people, parents, like agreeing to stuff on evenings or weekends when normally they may have said like, nope, no meetings after this time or no meetings on this day. And, and we say very little, like, I had to block in my calendar, like free space, white space. Like I block off like this time, no matter what is time for Lauren to like go hike or go create something or go cook. Like I I have had to become intentional about creating space in my calendar for play. So I would say, even if it's like 10 minutes, just try and find some time throughout your day, throughout your week where you intentionally block or schedule time. And that time should be used for something fun, lighthearted, playful, um, whether with kids or without kids, um, but something that's light, light and heart and energy. Yeah. It's something that, you know, I, I mentioned, I always mentioned on here that I'm part of a dad's group. One of the things I've learned in there is the idea of, for me, a morning routine. I get up mm. in the morning. I, I go to work at four o'clock in the morning. If I get up at about 3.15, I can stumble out of bed and, and stumble into work about five minutes late and I'm good. Mm-hmm. But if I get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, I have time to get myself ready and sit down at my desk here. And I can sit in some silence and you know prayer, meditation, read a book, read the Bible, do whatever it is that I feel is going to serve me that day. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to do that at least four days a week. Um Usually, usually, I one night a week I have something scheduled that keeps me up too stinking late to do it. But I do that on a regular basis, and I feel like for me that really helps me regulate throughout the rest of the day. Yeah. So that when I get to the end of my work day and I come home and I have kids who just got off of school, who are all in their 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 crazy little head spaces because we're free. <laughs> and, I mean, I don't know about your experience with the kids, but right after school is not always a highly regulated brain space. Oh, no, there seems like there's so much that goes on in the evening and they coming home, getting homework done, making food, getting baths, brushing teeth, going to bed. <laughs> it just seems like the, the afternoon, evening can be a little bit chaotic and very fast paced. Yeah, there never seems to be enough time in the evening, yeah, you know, especially when you have a handful of kids and sports and therapies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're dealing with the foster care system, you know, you've got your caseworkers that you got to schedule mm-hmm. in, you know, and yeah. then you also have visitations and, and things like mm-hmm. that. So. You know, I can tell when he hasn't been doing his morning routines, you know, and, I, and I'll tell him, I'll be like, 
you need to get back on it. I, I can tell. I know you haven't done mm-hmm. it in a few days because it's that important for him. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's, I've tried to figure out how to get kids, you know, find out the, what's a, the kid version of this, you know? <laughs> and I haven't got that figured out yet because anytime you try to convince a kid to do something, they have 16 excuses why they shouldn't do that. Trying to yeah. figure out how to tell them they can't get up early and do that. <laughs> It depends on the age. But if I have like a, a kid that uh, teen or middle school, even like if I explain them the science behind some of this, like morning routines and, and the brain loves you know, rhythm, but the brain also loves routine. The brain loves structure and how like doing certain things in the morning can like prepare your brain to have a better day. When I talk about the science behind it, sometimes some of the older kids who can can like conceptualize that then have more motivation to, to do the things. And I'll, I'll like challenge them. Like, okay, let's you and I both try this for a week or two weeks and we'll kind of sit down and think about how we feel. And if we feel worse, we'll let it go. We won't do it again. But if we feel better, we'll think about how can we maybe pull this into our lives a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And now how about the moments of, you know, when, when they're all up in their feels, the moments when they are fully amygdala hijacked moments and, and ready to have meltdowns, you know, do you have any advice? Because I don't know a parent who hasn't had the meltdown moment. Yeah. You yeah. know, who hasn't sat there and had a kid screaming and hollering at him. And I know what I've figured out to work, you know, that works for, for my kids, usually fairly decent. But what kind of advice do you give to parents? Because I, you, you said you do coaching for, for this kind mm-hmm. of stuff, right? Yeah, So, so I do. what kind of advice do you, would you give to a parent who's looking for some, something to try because nothing has worked yet? Yeah, there, there are a few things. Um, one of the ones that is, is probably mm, a little bit more argued in the field is depending, like if the child's safe and they're, and they're throwing a major tantrum and their, their dog is barking, their thumb is wildly going, their wise owl is gone. There is some level of like, there, there's no reasoning with them. So for me, I just remove my energy and maybe like walk away or, you know, take a couple steps away or whatever and let them just scream it out, whatever it is, if, if it's appropriate, like if you're in the middle of a grocery store, might not be, you know, easiest for us or, you know, people around us to, to, to let them scream it out in that moment. But, um, again, granted they're safe. Like I might just let them chill themselves out. What I'll then do on the other end is I'll, I'll work with them when they're not having a major breakdown to, to teach them regulation skills that they can then utilize during the breakdown. But until they have those skills, it's going to be really challenging for me to be able to teach them, um, those in the moment. The other thing that I will do two other things, um, stay calm myself. Cause the more I get elevated, the more they're getting elevated. So I'm like, tell myself like calm body, calm face, calm mind, like keep your body calm, keep your face calm, keep your mind calm, keep it all calm. I just kind of repeat this mantra in my head. And then what I might start to do is maybe practice some of my regulating strategies or some of the ones I want the child to do. I won't request them to do it. I will just do it right beside them. So like, like kind of co-regulate aside beside me. And again, I'm not, I'm not asking them to do anything because putting a demand on them at that moment is probably going to make things worse. All I'm doing is showing them what I am doing to regulate because they're dysregulating me. Um, the last one depends on the child, but humor is really um, it takes us from that barking dog brain into the wise owl brain really quickly. So if I can add some element of humor in there, especially for like toddlers, uh, I'll try and do that. So I might make things talk. I might use a funny voice. I might try and move my body in a funny way. That, that's hard because when I'm stressed, it's hard to be like, yeah, I'm stressed out and be funny right now. But if I can kind of practice it or plan it ahead of time, because I know the tantrum is going to come, it might be easier for me to access. But typically that will put a child right back in their thinking brain. And if you're dealing with boys, I'm going to say fart jokes is probably the answer in that age range. Yeah, it flips her energy around really fast. There was a, there was a child that was um, 
he was an African refugee. He didn't speak any English. He was three and he would have really, really bad tantrums in, in, in the school, in the classroom, in the preschool classroom and pretty violent. Like I had lost gold pair of glasses. Teachers had to wear gloves because he would scratch their hands. He was strong too. So he would like push over bookshelves and really destructive. And we're like, they, they were like, we need, we need a solution fast. Cause I like, he's in danger. We're in, like, everyone's in danger because you know, he's just wild. So what I started doing was, um, when he was calm, I got his nap time blanket out and I would wrap it around him and I would say tacos. It was kind of like a, I wrap a blanket around like a taco burrito and I would squeeze really tight and I'd let go just for like a second or two. And you know, in English, but I kept saying the word taco. So then he started requesting it. He kept saying taco and I'd squeeze him with the blanket. So I told him like, keep the blanket out and I'll, I'll stay here to has the first breakdown. Keep that blanket very close to at all times. The moment that he has, he's entering into that state of, of, of breakdown, grab the blanket, cue him with the word taco and wrap the blanket around, squeeze and let go. Um, and it worked really, it worked almost instantly every time because he he already had the, the seed planted from taco. He knew what taco was and what it meant and what, what it was associated with. So that was already, that memory was already planted. And two, that that practice ahead of time was laughter, humor, fun, he associated with all those things. So the moment I, you know, cued him with that word and did that, it, it took him back into that like elevated state in a positive way. Um, and the deep pressure from the the squeeze brought him down as well. That's, to, that's you know, really, yeah, that, yeah, that's really good to restraint, which is elevates kids a lot more. So this is a much better, in my opinion, way to physically boundary a child. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's an awesome idea. Um, I think we're going to have to try to put something <laughs> like that into practice because we can, I have a, we have a mantra with a couple of our kiddos mm-hmm. when they start to get dysregulated and in that headspace or, or throwing a fit, you know, and it's, it's your, it's, it's pretty standard, you know, but in this place with these people, I am safe. You know, mm-hmm. and we just whatever the situation is, you know, we may tweak it to mm-hmm. to fit that situation. If we're out, you know, mm-hmm. we're in the grocery store, but mom's right here. I'm still safe. You know, so I like that idea of, you know, putting that together with with an object. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's so much more tangible for kids to see. And I like the idea of the the co-regulation you're mentioning, you know, figuring, figuring out how to do that alongside of your kid. Um I don't know how many people are familiar with the book uh, Never Split the Difference with Chris Voss. Chris is like – dude is, is a freaking genius. I love him. And, and he's he's a real down-to-earth guy. I had an opportunity to, to chat with him on a, on a Zoom call once um, just because he was in, in the group that I'm in. And, and he came and talked and he talks about things like mirror neurons. And primarily mm-hmm. his book is aimed at business professionals. Or if you want to go negotiate a good price for your car because he was a hostage negotiator for crying out loud – but I mean, let's be real honest. Sometimes our kids are like little terrorists. They are like little little kidnappers. We're going to kidnap your peace until we get what we want. And understanding how to walk into that and use those mirror neurons is amazing. He has saved me so much trouble. You know, I do all the the little nonverbal things sometimes, and I will, I will just stop and slow my voice. And I change my intonation and get a little bit deeper. And I make sure that they can hear the breath come in and out. And it's amazing because if I tell him you need to stop, take a breath. No, I don't want to. I don't want to breathe. I don't like to breathe. And I'm like, I want to argue now because you do too like to breathe. You'll die without it. But that that doesn't help the situation, right? So just by modeling that, it's amazing how number one, it it helps me. It helps me stay in that in that mm-hmm. calm head space. Mm-hmm. But it brings them down too without me ever telling them to do a thing. 
and yep. using the, that mirror neuron stuff that 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 Chris talks about in his book. That I'm like, wow, this is some of this is ingenious. I mean, it doesn't work 100 percent of the time, but it's worked a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I think too that you were sharing like so many of us, and this is like I, I've caught myself doing it. I think it just comes from my own parenting and upbringing. Is like when a child's in that state, they're already feeling out of control. Like internally, their body feels out of control, and we tell them to do something to like regain control, or get control, or like calm down, or you know, do this. We're just further taking away the control. Like they're already out of control, and then we're like, let me take away more of your control. Like putting demands on them just it's ineffective. Yeah, and I will just use the example if if you're a husband. You should know this already. If you're a wife, you want your husband to know this. The one thing that rarely works is to look your wife squarely in the eyes and say, you need to calm down. Try it once. Just go ahead and try it once. And if you survive, you'll understand what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) It works the same way with kids, though. It does. And I I like the way you explain it because you're you're taking control away from them. I hadn't even thought about Mm -hmm. that. I just knew it didn't work well. (laughs) I was trained many years ago. I science behind all these things. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't need the science. I just needed those ex- that experience from a long, long time ago when I tried it once or twice. And, yeah. you know, somebody told me it wasn't very effective. It was not very effective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's, that's great. You know, just so, some strategies to help kids. So, you know, the behavior hub, what do you guys mm-hmm. like? What do you offer? What resources? Um, and, and how can you help people who maybe, you know, what sort of, um, I, I'm going to get tongue tied here. <laughs> what sort of problems do people, can people come to you looking to help and what kind of help in, and resources do you have with them? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I work a lot on emotional regulation, which is a lot of kids, like no matter what the problem is, ADHD or OD or stress, trauma, anxiety, like all of it goes back to regulation. So, you know, I, I say that and people are like, well, do, do people, do parents know what emotional regulation is? I'm like, I'm, I think it's kind of straightforward. Like you're regulating your emotions, you're managing your emotions. So emotion management, but um, I take that and I, I come at it from a lot of different areas. So there, there are different options. It depends on like how much support you want and what level of it and how fast. So certainly coaching is like immediate. It's fast. It's, you know, a lot of support, a lot of like really quickly. So you get, you get a lot of change really fast. Cause you've got me a, a lot of the time. Um, if you don't want to jump in that angle, there, there's, you know, training options. We do groups and, um, and like a least restrictive option would be, I put about just about everything I know into five or six different courses. You can work through these courses at your own pace where I talk through video and then I have audio clips and there's an interactive workbook and, and things like that, but everything related to, to emotional regulation from some standpoints, so maybe it's the brain, maybe this one's about why behaviors occur and the needs behind it. Maybe this, you know, this course is about communication. This one's about your managing your own stress. So lots of different angles of, of emotion regulation. And I would say that the website has all of this information. You can email me. What I usually recommend everyone is just to jump on and like a discovery call with me and we'll talk about what your needs are. Okay. Based on these needs, maybe I'm not even a good fit for you. If I am a good fit, you know, here's what I would recommend um, you pursue first. So you can figure out what is the best pathway for you to get the information that you need as quickly as possible. But even if, if you, you know, they hop on the website and, and they look at the blogs or the podcasts, they all talk about these topics as well. So this is, you know, free information that you can either listen to or read um, to learn some of these things on your own. It's just like, do you want that intensive support behind the information? That's really cool. Um, now, and, and what we do, I mean, everybody knows we're foster parents and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, some of our kids are very 
high level need. Um, mm-hmm. You know, kiddos that are diagnosed as RAD, reactive attachment disorder. Yep. Do you guys offer services when it comes to just not your normal every day to day dysregulations, but do you guys have options for, you know, severe trauma? Yeah, I would say um, the, the courses are, um, you, have, you like come in at this, maybe I wouldn't say like baseline, but you can go up from there, but for that, yeah, like that is my background. So do we offer that? Yes. If you do something more individualized, like coaching, you wouldn't have, you know, that type of support in, in some of the things like the, probably the training groups or the, um, the courses, but you would get that in the coaching. Or if you did like an intensive training group where everyone was kind of looking for that level of support and that training group, I could design and create it around needs. But the the coaching framework I designed is a very loose framework where it's not, it's not great for business. It's not very scalable, but when I work with any family, it's the first conversation that discovery call is like, what are all the needs based on the needs? I kind of paint a picture of what's going on in the family. And then we start I start to design interventions and a plan that that address and meet those needs. So the the support is very individualized. So if it is something like severe trauma and there are things like RAD um, or attachment, other attachment concerns or needs, then we start to work through some of those things. Well, that's good to know because I know that as we've done, been through some of our own stuff we're dealing with over the last couple of years, I've run across at least two people in our little town and it's a little town. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, technically it has the word city at the end of it, but it's a town, <laughs> but, um, I met two other people in this town who have kids who have things like reactive attachment disorder. It's much more common than what we really realize, I think. So, so what are some of the markers of, of maybe that, that severe trauma that somebody would really need to look for that individualized training? Because a lot of times we just think we're crazy because we're raising kids who are right. way out there and we have no right. clue why. Obviously, I was just a horrible parent and caused all these problems, you know, even though there's some other trauma that, that we're aware right, of and we don't right. understand what we're really the depth of what we're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would have grace for yourself because a lot of times this trauma is carried through, through the generations, through genes. Like, unfortunately I'm, I am healing wounds of ancestors that existed far before I was ever a concept in someone's mind. Um, so, you know, those things can be corrected. With, with chemical changes in the brain, with, with this work and, and undoing patterns, but um, it's not always just the environment and, and the way we raise kids and what they're exposed to. But I would say, um, you know, if you have multiple kids or your kids are in school and you're around other families, you, you, we, don't, we don't have to compare our kids to other, other kids, but in some sense, like you, you may know like what is typical development, or you may be more aware of what is typical development. So what is outside the realm of, of typical? Um, I would say think things in extremes, like Tantrums are normal for three-year-olds. 60-minute tantrums, not so normal. Tantrums still at you know six, seven years old, again, still not so normal. So being aware of like, are the, the behaviors, and you could say the other side, you could say anxiety or internalized. Is my, is my kid um, not like socializing or not engaging with their peers? Or do I see a lot of anxiety around that? You know, it's something to pay attention to because the kids don't know, they can't speak their needs. They can't say what's going on. They don't, they don't understand. So anything else I would just say, um, it's always good to ask a professional, like, this is what I'm seeing. Is this normal or abnormal? Cause I'm not sure. And that doesn't mean that you are committed to any type of therapy or diagnosis or anything like that. Um, it's just, it's asking people who may have a, a deeper knowledge in child development 
if, if this particular behavior or these behaviors fall into this curve of normal. You mentioned generational trauma in there. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's one of those things that a lot of people will look at and kind of say, ah, that, that doesn't make any sense. Like you had a good childhood. You had a good upbringing. I've heard parents mm-hmm. tell their, look at their kids straight in the eye and mm-hmm. you had a good upbringing. I don't know what's wrong with you. Nobody mm-hmm. beat you. Nobody did this to you. Nobody mm-hmm. did that, you know, and, and there's no reason for you to act this way. Can you yeah. maybe speak a little bit towards what generational trauma is and what we should be looking for and how we can help these kids? Yeah, it's tough. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I've experienced is like, um, addiction is an easy one to look for that that's carried through and addiction doesn't always have to be drugs or alcohol. I mean, addiction can, can be overworking, like working all the time and addicted to your work. Um, so looking for some of those, those addictive patterns that maybe, you know, you have, or your parent, one of your parents or both parents had or grandparents had, it's an easier, easier one to spot. Um, I would say you'll see patterns like people, um, entering into relationships where, where they are always the helper. Like they, they're all the constantly the giver and there's a really unbalanced relationship of a partner who's, I hate to use like narcissistic, but like always thinking about themselves and taking and taking and taking. And then you've got the helper giver on the other side. That dynamic is, is quite common. Um, so looking for things like that as well. And, uh, even like rage and anger, like extreme anger and rage that, that often is carried through genes. You often see, you know, if you're, you know, someone's dad had anger and rage, not maybe just anger, but rage, the child might be, have a tougher time to, to manage their emotions and you'll see more rage like behavior. So I would say some of those, um, bigger emotional patterns are, are things to look for. Yeah, that's something that, you know, some of our kids have dealt with, you know, the generational sort of things. You know, my I have two kids that I know of who were they were in foster care. We adopted them mm-hmm. through that system, but they came from families where their parents were in foster care mm-hmm. when they were kids. Yeah. And if you, you watch that down the generations, it seems to be the sort of thing that's happened mm-hmm. time after time after time. And that's yeah. part of what, what our goal is, is to is to break those generational traumas yeah, to yes. change that. Because yeah, that we, we have a, a distinct ability to completely disrupt that in from mm-hmm. our, where we're at. We, we can change that and show differently how life can be. Although, you know, another struggle point that we have is that's not always within our ability. You yeah. know, we've seen, we've seen addiction try to try to jump into, into our kid's life as well. Even after we've tried to change that and we go, wait a second, yeah. I've tried to, I've tried to not do that. I tried to break this and, and we can't. And that, that's a hard thing. And I think a lot of parents need to realize that, that just because you step in and you do something, oftentimes it's not your job. It's, it's a, it's a chance you have, but it doesn't mean you can change it for sure. Yeah. No, I agree. That's uh yeah, that's, that's been a struggle for us as well. You know, even, even our older kids have have gone through uh, each of them have gone through some bouts with some addiction issues. And, and right now, I think it's culture, society. I don't know what it is, but we were talking a little earlier about how, uh, how this anxiety thing is huge in our culture. Mm -hmm. Everybody's deep in their anxiety. And it seems as if the best way for people or the, well, the best way that people see to deal with that anxiety is through addictions. And right now meth is too cheap. Heroin is too cheap. And Mm -hmm. these two things have just completely destroyed the landscape of the parenting world 
in our area. I'm assuming it's pretty much everywhere. Yeah, I think so too. So yeah, it's dealing with that with kids and figuring out how to how to keep kids away from those addictions is tough. Yeah, my tough. one of my older sons, he he told me, you know, now that he's a little bit older, he's got his got his world back together and he's not doing stupid stuff anymore. And he talks about, you know, you go to go to the high school and, and you put the money in this spot and then underneath the water fountain over here was where you would pick up your Adderall. And it was yeah, it was it was just right there in the middle of school. It would it, that's where you went to get your stuff. And I'm like, holy crap. Like this yeah. is happening every day in, in kids' schools. And yeah. if a little bitty town like ours has that going on, I can only imagine what a big school in a major metro area is dealing with. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And will willpower is it's stretched thin right now. It's getting harder and harder to say no. Yeah. So so how do we how do we convince these kids that like they need to change change their life when when they see this being something that's it's glamorized in the movies and through culture and on in music and TV and it's something is there something as parents that we can do to help these kids not see this as their only way through this hard time yeah I mean I think a therapeutic approach with someone who has a background specifically because we go to therapy and sometimes we're like ah oh, therapy didn't work and I, I often question like did therapy not work because it wasn't the right therapist it wasn't the right you know fit or it wasn't the right approach because I've been to therapists and I'm like oh like you're a good therapist you're just not the right therapist for me or you just don't have the background or the area that I really need help with so I think um, therapy is a great place to start and, and not being afraid to to be honest with a therapist about what you're, you're experiencing and, and maybe finding someone else or using that therapist to help you find someone else. But I think really talking, talking openly with the support of therapist or a coach or, you know, someone that's trusted with this child is, is having some of these open conversations because sometimes we won't have them or we're uncomfortable talking about kids with kids about drugs or whatever. We think that like they're too young to handle it. And I think the problem is we, we don't talk about these things early enough and they are uncomfortable, but if you can have this honest conversation and you really show a lot of respect for your child around communication, then I think it's more likely that they will open up to you and, and share some of these struggles. And then we can begin to go seek that help and teach them regulation skills. Cause it, it's really what is under it all. It's really going back to the core and, and like resetting the nervous system and teaching regulation so that when these decisions come up, they're not making them out of that emotional brain, but they're making them out of a logic and reason. And then they're like using their brain to think ahead. Okay. If I do this, what, what is the consequence? But we're not stuck in the emotional brain. We're like, I want to fix now. I want to feel better. This will help me to feel better quickly. Well, my my mind is already stuck in that that whole dog and the owl idea. So it's, <laughs> it's what I'm seeing as you're talking. I love that. Um, I did have another question though, because yeah. again, reference back to the dads group, we we uh, have an amazing group of guys, and we talk about things that are uncommon to talk about in our group. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, I just read a post inside of our group today where one guy is talking about his struggles with porn addiction, which is not mm -hmm. something that's uncommon. Uh, right. For guys in our in our group to talk about it's it's a big deal, mm -hmm. and when I was a kid, you know, if you want if you wanted to to go find a pornography magazine, you had to go to the right gas station <laughs> when mom, dad, nobody they knew would be there, and hopefully yeah. they didn't know the gas station attendant, and you can maybe get away with a magazine, and you had to find a way to hide it. Today yeah. we have these kids, we're handing them devices that is mm -hmm. literally just a couple clicks away from some of the hardest core pornography out there. And yeah. I know that the, you know, especially in the, the teens and preteens, that has to be a huge issue. Is that something that it, you're seeing out there that you're dealing with? And, and how do you talk to kids about that as a parent so that 
it's not the weird, awkward conversation around sex stuff that it can be. I mean, this is coming from a guy who got the talk, the talk from his mom. And I'm just, everybody gets to laugh at this. <laughs> Amanda knows this story who got this, 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 the talk from my, my mother, not my dad. He wouldn't talk about anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it involved my mom and two sock hand puppets. And you can just imagine what that was like and just how traumatized I was and probably still am to some level. God love her. She was doing the best she had with what she had, but mm-hmm. we didn't have good models at that time. And I, yeah. yeah. So, so how do you, how do you talk to kids in a way that doesn't leave them, you know, somewhat traumatized <laughs> or afraid to talk to you about that stuff? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, one, when I'm having tough conversations, whether it's like sex or drugs or whatever, I try and like, I don't say hide the conversation, but like I try and have the child active in something. It's like some type of like creative arts with their, like their hands are, are moving with something. They're creating something, they're doing something, they're playing a game. So like the, the, the sole focus isn't just on, it's not, they're not doing something else like that takes away um, some of their cognitive ability. Cause I want them to be able to listen and hear and respond to what I'm saying, but I want their hands to be occupied because it just, it, for some reason seems to enable kids to just I, I probably get some of that anxious, uncomfortable energy out. So I always, have conversations around that. I also am really mindful of the time of day that I choose. So if it's like end of day or something, it might not be the best time to have the conversation. I, I plan that. And like, when are they going to be most rational and when are they going to be able to manage their emotions better and, and schedule that during that time? Another thing too, is sometimes it's harder coming from me. So I think about like, is there someone this child trusts or someone I'm close to, or they're close to, or both close to that I can kind of talk through? Um, and can I can I solicit that person's help to have this conversation or to start to open this have to start to open this conversation or to like have this conversation with us? So a couple of different things there that I really think about when I'm going into these conversations. But unfortunately, the fact that we have to have them, we have to start. And, and maybe the first one doesn't go well, but we don't give up. We try and we have another one. And you know, if we screw it up, we apologize and say, I I messed that up. Let me try again. Or will you let me try again? But just continuing to open up the dialogue and continue to have the dialogue. And if it gets too uncomfortable in person, think about what other ways can you communicate? Maybe writing those things down in, in like a a journal and passing the journal back and forth, or maybe it's through text or email. I don't know. It depends on how old they are, but is there a way to have that conversation where maybe the emotion isn't felt or seen when it's in person? Yeah. I love that because text is, is often a horrible way to communicate about emotional things with people. And that might be a yeah. way to, to be able to do it. Cause that if you, if we don't have those conversations with them, they will get the information and they will probably get it from people their age mm-hmm. and probably not healthy versions of that. I mean, yeah. uh, some of the things I've heard over the years, just, <laughs> I don't know who thought of these things, but you know, <laughs> kids come up with some, some amazingly stupid things sometimes, and, and that be get, gets just taught as truth from one child to another. And if we're yeah. not as the adults stepping in and, and stepping into those hard places, then we leave our kids vulnerable to a lot of that stuff. Right, right. And and approaching them with grace. Like I try so hard to meet people with grace and, and curiosity about behavior choices. Like my approach is never to shame someone or go into it being like, you shouldn't have done this. Or like, why are you doing this? It's always like, I'm curious. I want to understand you and I want to understand this. And I, I always start that way because I don't want them to go into the conversation with already a negative cloud looming over top of us. Well, and that's the thing in this day and age, shame and judgment is just so real. And us as parents, we feel like we're getting judged 
very harshly for the things that our children do and that it's all mm-hmm. our fault and, you know, we're yeah. crappy parents and, you know, mm-hmm. you should have done this or you shouldn't done that. But what advice would you give to parents to say, hey, you know, there's no shame in getting your kids help or getting your family help, you know, because it's not just the child. It's the family, too. Right. Yeah, I think it takes a lot of courage to do that. And it takes um, knowing, like really listening to your gut and your intuition and trusting that and not letting outside or um, people around you um, like um, cloud that because your gut always, <laughs> almost always has the right answer. We just always listen to it. So really like slow down and think about like, okay, I need to step into courage and how and who, what resources do I need to use to, to get to that courageous place to be able to do this? Because I know this in my gut and my soul that this, this feels right. And I need to do this to help or that to help. Um, and, and calling me on maybe people that they know around them, if, if they know any that have done this or that have, you know, what did you, what did you do? How did you do this? How did you step into courage? How did you get the strength to be able to do this? And can you give me some advice here? Cause I'm struggling. And I don't know how to move forward. Yeah. That's that part, you know, because depending on your culture and where you come from, you know, my, my dad could not see why anybody would ever need to go see a counselor. Why do you need to talk to somebody else? You can just talk to me. And yeah, don't get me wrong. I had a great relationship with my dad. I love the man and all, but if you want to talk about something that involved emotions, you were pretty much out of luck if you were talking yeah, to him. Yeah. He wasn't too aware of what they actually were. <laughs> yeah. he, he, he was. He grew up in that generation where emotions were a useless thing. And so being able to find somebody sometimes and have that model for you, you know, your, your mm-hmm. culture may tell you that that's not something that we do. You know, yeah. our people don't do that. And that drives mm-hmm. me crazy because – you know, you, you'd mentioned earlier about finding the right therapist. The first guy I ever went to, I met with him several times. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty certain I'm, I'm just wasting money here. That This is not doing me any good. You know, the, the guy, I, maybe it was just his personal style. But if you walk in the room and he sits down and just looks at you until you talk, it really got uncomfortable pretty quick for me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. uh, this is not good. But now we have Dr. Tom, who, by the way, I... Uh, I'm not giving anybody his phone number because I want him to have room in a schedule for us <laughs> because Dr. Tom's a freaking genius. And I love the dude, right? He, he's helped us out a lot over the years, but it took us a couple yeah. tries to find the right one. And that yeah. is very, very powerful. Yeah. And keep, keep boundaries. Like I, I think we, we, with our family, especially that we let those boundaries get blurred. Like I know this is best. I know I need to do this, but I'm letting my family influence me and cross my boundary. My boundary is like, this is what I feel like my family needs. And whether, you know, my, my, uh, outside family believes this is fair or not. I'm holding firm to this boundary because I know in my gut that this is right. So keep those boundaries and you don't have to justify a boundary with biological family or not. It, it is your boundary. It is what you think is best for your family. So you get to make the, the decision, call the shots. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, the one book I, and I, I've talked to a lot of people about this. The one book that I cannot buy anymore because I bought too many copies. Every time I loan it out, it does not come back. But it's um, Doctors Cloud and Townsend who have the book. It's just called Boundaries. Okay. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with that particular I'm one. Not. Oh, that that one. Yeah. I, every time I loan it out, it never comes back. And they <laughs> they've actually really expanded out now. Um, they have some versions. You know, boundaries in marriage, boundaries with family, mm-hmm. boundaries okay. with work, with kids. But it, it's it was a great lesson for me to sit down and learn about that as a as a young man because I knew nothing about that stuff. We didn't. It wasn't talked about in my generation growing up. And, you know, you just, you did what you were supposed to do. And and because somebody tells you you were supposed to do it and you believe that and you were guilty if you didn't do it. 
Yep. And who likes to live in guilt and shame, right? And yep. instead you live in guilt and shame because you feel like you let people walk all over you. So the, the boundaries, that, that's a huge part. I love that. Well, Lauren, I think it's probably about time for us to start wrapping up. But because I, I, especially if we want to get into the brain stuff, I could talk all day about brain stuff. That is <laughs> such an interesting thing, right? It is. I, I'm, I'm blown away by just how much we can learn about how to communicate with one another in different ways that oftentimes requires a tweak of the face of some simple wording. I mean, there's an entire, uh, an entire practice, NLP, non-linguistic, mm-hmm. neuro-linguistic programming. I get it right. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm amazed at how effective that stuff is. Yeah. And, and so what we can do with that, with learning how to use the human brain a little bit better, it's amazing how much we can change the lives of the kids around us, the kids we're trying to help, and the adults as well. I mean, quite frankly, we're, we're all – um, we all can really be helped by using that in a lot of different ways. So I want to thank you for, for coming in here and sharing a lot of your experience and knowledge. Um, you know, the behavior hub.com is how people can find you. I assume there's a, there's just a link on there to, to having a discovery call with you. Yep. They should be all over there, all over the website. All right. Well, good deal. Yeah. Cause, cause I'm certain there is somebody somewhere who needs to make a phone call, who needs to learn what they can do to change their life because we all have struggles. We all do. There's and there's no shame in reaching out for help. The only real shame is where you try and pretend like you can do it all on your own. Because um, trust me, you can't. I tried. I tried all the ways, <laughs> and I can't. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it so much. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Lauren's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart, so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have episodes showing up every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have an account at Buy Me a Coffee. It's like a virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys so cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Unparalleled Studios. Studios. Studios.